Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together to look at your word. We ask you to guide and teach us what you would want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, 1 Kings chapter 8. We're going to be starting at verse 12. We're still talking about the dedication of the temple. They finished the temple. And if you remember, we left off that God's glory had descended on the temple and it was such that no, nobody could go into it. It was a thick cloud of darkness all over it. So starting at verse 12. Then spoke Solomon, the Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. I have surely built you a house to dwell in, a, a settled place for you to abide in forever. And the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation of Israel. And all the congregation of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which spoke with his mouth unto David my father, and hath with his hand fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house, that my name might be therein, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. And it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And the Lord said unto David my father, Whereas it is in your heart to build a house unto my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son shall come forth out of, which shall come forth out of your loins. He shall build the house unto my name. And the Lord hath performed his word that he spoke. And I have risen up in the room of David my father to sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord has promised and have built a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And I have sat there a place for the ark therein for the covenant of the Lord, which, we, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. All right, so we're looking at this. The glory of God descended upon the newly built tabernacle. And this glory of God was what was seen when they, when they built the first tabernacle. God descended upon it. The glory of God is what led them through the wilderness and the tower and the, and the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. This is the same glory that wandered about. And Psalms tells us that when they settled down in one place, the cloud would move over them to give them shade. Uh, so they had quite an experience wandering through the wilderness, being shaded and being led, and all by the glory of God. And Solomon starts his description with the Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. Now, we as Christians especially don't usually think of God dwelling in darkness. And yet in the Old Testament, it frequently said that he, was, he dwelled in a thick cloud, a cloud of darkness. Uh, some of the scriptures for that would be Deuteronomy 4.11, Deuteronomy 5.22, Psalm 18.12 and Psalm 97.2. Okay, there's many more, but he's kind of picked out a few of them that talk about God dwelling in a thick uh, cloud or thick darkness. What does that mean? That God is kind of obscured to people. And he's even obscured to us many times when we think we know what he's doing or, we, or, or we're trying to figure out what he's doing and everything looks pitch black to us and we don't understand what he's doing. God says, I'm still there. You know, one of the Psalms says that God dwells in Sheol, which is hell. He's, he says, you know, David said, if I descend into Sheol, behold, you are there. God is everywhere, but he isn't always in, sensed by his presence. In hell, he will be there, but people won't sense him because he's going to be hidden from them. 
because there's going to be no comfort in, in hell. When we're in the midst of our trials, sometimes we, it gets so dark and so thick in the clouds that you know, we can, God, I can't even tell you're here anymore. And God's just saying, I'm still here. And he's saying, do you trust me to know that I'm here? And if we get too wrapped up in the problems, we, we can't see the trees because of the forest because of the tree in front of us. You know? and, it's, and we do that often. We get into a place where we just get so wrapped up in our problem that we you know, stick, it, we stick our nose right in the front of the problem and say, God, I can't see you. I, all I see is this great big problem. And God says, really, not that big problem. Take a step back. You know, and he's sitting right there, but he dwells in a thick cloud, in a thick darkness. And, he's, and he, this cloud had descended so heavily upon the te- temple that the priest couldn't go into it. And Solomon says, this is what God said. God said that he would dwell in these. And he said, then he goes, I surely have built you a house to dwell in, a settled place for you to abide in forever. Now, this is interesting because he's going to admit later on that God has never asked for a house to live in. You know, God never wanted a place to live in, and he didn't want a settled place to live in. He gave them a tabernacle. And we were looking at this, why do they build this house? He's going to tell us later, David wanted to. And David wanted to honor God and do it his way and, and help God. And so Solomon said, God, I have built you a place that is steady, it is sure. Now, having said this, I, I think back to this. We've got the God of the universe who owns everything, controls everything, and to him, that great big temple was not a secure place because he's going to destroy it in two different times in the future. During the Babylonian captivity and during the Roman captivity, the temple is going to be destroyed, so it's not a very sure place. And I can almost, I can almost picture God kind of laughing about this. Okay, Solomon, you've built me a secure place. Now, in Solomon's mind, he's built him a very secure place. He has a building that is heavy rocks, heavy, heavy uh, gold all over it, and it's a beautiful building, and it's as secure as any earthly building can be. And we know that that is only as secure as man is to destroy it. And this is where he's at. He's saying, God, I have built you this very secure building. It's not moving any place. We're, we're, we're going to have a place to worship you. And we know that God had told the people that where he settled his name, all the men of Israel were to go and worship three times a year at the tabernacle. In this case, it's going to now be the temple in Jerusalem. So three times a year from this point on, people are to go to Jerusalem to worship. That would be Passover, Pentecost, and Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. So we have three times that the men are required to go before God and to show up and, and, and worship before God. And Solomon has built a place that says, God, we have your place. Nobody can steal it. Nobody can take it. We have a sure place for you. Then Solomon turns around in verse 14, and the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation of Israel, and all the congregation of Israel stood. Now this is something that is kind of interesting for us because we don't really think about this in in this way. But in Jewish tradition, the teacher sat down and the people stood during the teaching. Now in Christianity, the people sit down and the pastor stands 
But in, in the Jewish tradition, we see it here. We know, we see it also in Nehemiah 8, where, they, where the people stood all day for the ceremony. You know, we think, you think sometimes we have some long services maybe, but uh, there they started at sunrise and they stayed till sunset and stood the entire time. All through the New, New Testament, we read that Jesus sat down and taught. And it doesn't tell us the other side of it, that the people would have stood around him. It was, it was a way of honoring the teacher. It was a way of respect that you stood before God and the, and the instruction. We don't do it anymore, and I don't know when it changed. I've never really looked into why, when or how it changed, but it did. And so Solomon stands, turns around from praising God, turns to the people, and he blesses them, and the people stand, ready for that blessing, ready for that teaching. And he starts out, and he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which spoke with his mouth unto David my father, and hath with his hand fulfilled it. He says, God made a promise and God has fulfilled his promise to David through this day that he's building the temple. Do we really grab hold of God's promises and look for the fulfillments, or do we just kind of take the word of God very lightly? Now, this is one of the things that I mentioned even on Sunday. Something as simple as the Lord's, uh, the, the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Do we really think about him being my shepherd, your shepherd, each one of our shepherds? You know, a lot of times when you see these words, my, in the Bible, try putting your name in there and see how it will change the effect of that, the, the effect of that verse, because it really is your verse. If it is a verse that isn't very specific to the speaker talking it, then you can be, the Lord is Ralph Shepherd. The Lord is whoever, you know, put your name in there and see what it, see what it does and see if it really affects the way you look at it. Now, if it says my, or even your, Try to look into, you know, saying, God, does this really apply to me? And, and try putting your name in there and see how that will change the way you read some of these uh, verses that you read. And it says, he has answered. He has answered. This was a very quick answer. David had been promised it before, slightly before Solomon was born. And now Solomon gets to be the one that finishes that temple. Very quick answer. Not all of God's answers of prophecy are that quick. They're not even that quick sometimes for us. <laughs> but you know, we need to be able to really look and say, and I'm really am thinking more and more about this, are we really personalizing God's word and really claiming it to be true? Now, not everything can be taken into that case, but are we really looking at it and saying, God, how is this word to be personalized by me? The great news is that when we really get down and to trust his word, we get a lot of comfort in it. I was talking to one of the men at, men, uh, employees at the uh, prison just the other day, and he was talking about that he doesn't have confidence in his salvation because he doesn't really understand God's word and doesn't think that most of it belongs to him. You know, I'd quote verses, and he goes, well, I just don't have that confidence. I'm going, it says anybody. Aren't you part of anybody? It says those who believe are, you, you, do you believe? You know, we'd go through all these different verses, and he just didn't want to personalize them. You know, we've got to be careful about that, because God's word is all we have to live with. If his word isn't true and isn't absolutely true, then we have nothing to stand on. And this is what I've said over and over. I stand on his word. If it says it, it's right. 
Whether I believe it, it's right. Whether I feel like it's true, it's still right. Whether I agree with it, it's still right and I'm wrong. So I have to change my attitude, my emotions, my thoughts to say, God, you're true. And this is why we really have to grab hold of it. And I've done it pretty successfully most of my life saying, this is, God, this is your word. This is for me. But you understand how much peace it has when you can grab hold of God's word and say, God, you made this promise. I'm going to stand on it. God says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. What that means is we're sealed. You know, and if you think about that, in, in their day, they, they would, they'd wrap up the letter and they'd stick, it, they'd stick wax and they'd stamp it with a seal. Our equivalent is taking an envelope and sealing the envelope. It is sealed. That seal told, tells you that when you get it, nobody has opened it, theoretically. And we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. When we, are, when we accept Christ, God wraps us up in the Holy Spirit. He seals us and says, okay, I'm going to deliver you to the Father, sealed, signed, sealed, and delivered. <laughs> okay? You know, we are in Christ, in his righteousness. We are placed there in the moment we're saved. God looks at us and he sees Jesus Christ. He doesn't see us. Tomorrow, you know, I've already studied for tomorrow, and it's got a beautiful study in tomorrow's about our good works not being worth anything, which is exactly what the New Testament says, and it's right in the Old Testament as well. Nothing we can do is going to please God, and that's why he puts us in Jesus Christ. And it was the picture even in the Old Testament on the day of of atonement. They offered the sacrifice lamb and that lamb covered their sins for the, the sins for the year that they had committed. And they would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. Jesus shed his blood so that we could be seen perfect by God. You know, we need to really grab hold of these truths and say, God, these are truly mine. I accept them. And not be fighting what God says about us. You know, we, we talk about learning to forgive ourselves and everything. And, you know, and I, I was listening to a pastor who was talking about we can't forgive ourselves because we're not the one that, that's offended. Only the person that has been offended can forgive. And all sin is against God. So God is really the only one that can forgive. Now, I can live in that forgiveness. I can, through God, give forgiveness to others. But truly, the only one that can forgive them is God himself because he was the one that sinned. David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. And that was his confession for the, for the adultery of the Bathsheba and for the murder of Uriah. And he says, God, it's you I sinned against. Uh, not, not Uriah's family, not, not Bathsheba, not Uriah, but against you, God, because he recognized that all sin is ultimately against God. Now, that doesn't mean we can't hurt somebody. You know, and that we shouldn't forgive people because Jesus said that if we don't forgive others, he won't forgive us, but that's because we are his representative applying his forgiveness. But we can't forgive ourselves because we, our sin is against God. All we can do is accept God's forgiveness. And that is important, and this is why I said it's arrogant of us to say I can't forgive myself. Well, you, you can't forgive yourself, number one, and you've got to accept God's forgiveness, number two. And if you're not forgiving his, accepting his forgiveness, then you've really got a big problem. Because you're saying, God, I have higher standards than you do. 
And God has the highest standards out there. So for us to tell us, tell him, God, my standards are higher than yours, I can't forgive myself, is a problem. And we want to be careful of that. So we see here, he says, God has kept his promise, he's fulfilled it. Verse 16, since the day that I have brought forth my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house that my name might be therein, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. So again, God is, Solomon is going over God's statement. And I love it. Everything always in the, in the Old Testament goes back to God's faithfulness. He called Israel to be a nation through Abraham when he called him out of the Ur of Chaldees. All right? Abraham wandered all of his life around the, the promised land and had ended up with one small piece of property. Does anybody remember what that property was? The cave at Mamre where his wife was buried. I would think, I was thinking of a tomb. Yeah, it was a tomb. Yeah. It was a little, little more than a tomb, but it, yeah. it was a, yeah. that was the only property that Abraham owned in his entire life. Other than that, he wandered around and, said, and God said, everywhere you walk is yours. But he physically actually owned only one piece of property. Isaac comes along, and he gets the same promise, and he owns one piece of property when he dies. The same piece of property he inherited is from his father, where his mom and his dad were buried. Jacob gets the same promise. He owns one piece of property when he dies. All right? Uh, and yet... The entire promised land was given to them. And in Jacob's time, they moved to Egypt. And you know the story, Joseph saved them from dying of famine, put them in the best part of, of uh, Egypt, but Egypt was not their own land. They never, put, they never owned it. And then God delivered them from Egypt. And from that point on, almost everything always points back to his deliverance of his people from Egypt to establish them as a nation. And that is the one that they, even to this day, the Jews celebrate, Passover. Passover is that deliverance from Egypt and then entering the promised land 40 years later. And it only took them that long because the people rebelled. And God said, fine, you, you're worried about your children dying? We'll let you die and your children will take, take the land. And wandered them around the desert for 40 years. And this is, this is what he's referring back to. Since God delivered us from Egypt, God never asked for a temple to be built. You know, he never did. He was never looking for a temple. Why? Because men tend to idolize things. All right? And that's exactly what ends up happening with the temple, both temples. They idolize it. They start swearing by the temple. They pray to the temple, more to the temple than to the God of the temple. And we see this over and over. We as human beings tend to lift things up and glorify the things. We glorify the way we worship. We glorify how we worship. We glorify, you know, people will go, well, it's just not worship if I'm not having a piano and a pipe organ being played. Or it's not worship unless there's a worship band up there making, making a loud noise for God. It's not worship if we're not doing, you know, fill in, fill in the blank. You know, and this is the way people get. They get focused on the things. 
rather than the giver. And we've got to be careful because it is easy even for us to be focused on the gifts that God gives us rather than the giver of the gifts. And this is one of the reasons I believe God never wanted a temple built. The tabernacle could be moved wherever he wanted it to and people would have to struggle with it and know where it was at. Uh, but he was not looking for a building for the focus to be on. And we can do the same thing. I've, I know people who have taken the physical Bible and turned it into an idol. You know, not necessarily the words within it, but the actual book. You know, and that's not good. I know people who have used, studied the Bibles and worn them out, and they have every single Bible they have ever used tucked away in a closet because it is the actual book is, is holy and not necessarily the words of the book. And this struck me one time when I went to a Jewish synagogue for, for an assignment in comparative religions, and I watched them take and the law out of the locked cabinet, they unlocked the cabinet, they took it out, it was covered up, and they walked it all around, and people were singing and reaching out and touching it. And it was very, on one side it was very interesting because of the honor that they were giving it, but at the same time I was very bothered because it almost was they were worshiping that scroll that was wandering around as they wandered you know, up one aisle and back down the aisle and then took it and, and read it out. Now, I still treat it with respect. I'm not going to throw it around. I'm not going to rip it up on purpose. I'm not going to deface it because it, it is a representation of it, but it is not holy in itself. The message in it is holy. The message that has come through it is holy because it is Jesus Christ. The words are Jesus Christ. So we see here that God says, I don't want this great big edifice. By the time we get to Jesus' day, Everything's about the temple. You know, you've got to come there to the temple. You've got to tra you know, trade your stuff over for, for holy stuff that has not left the temple. You know, holy money and holy, holy sacrifices and all these things. Uh, you know, they pray to the temple. They look to the temple. And even before this time, they pray toward the temple. You know, it's God's presence. So yes, in one sense, they're... They're doing the right thing, you know, because they're, but they're saying, God, you only dwell in that temple. And even when we read Daniel, Daniel prays toward Jerusalem. And to this day, the Jews will set up their synagogue so that they face toward Jerusalem if there's any way that they can do it. Uh, because they still think of Jerusalem being the city of God, and they really don't have this idea that, Yes, they understand that God is everywhere, but they don't have the idea that he is ministering to people everywhere. I mean, they recognize the word saying that he is, and, and sometimes we as Christians do the same thing. God, I just really feel really close to you when I go to church, because that's where you're at. Well, I don't know. My God says he dwells in my heart. He's wherever I'm at, but so I, I know that he's wherever I'm at. Now, do I like church? Yes, I like church. We get God's people together where two or three are gathered. There am I in the midst of you. But I don't need to come to church to be knowing that God is with me because he is with me wherever I'm at. And don't need to be praying. You know, I'm not trying to figure out, okay, where, where is chloride from wherever I'm at so I can go pray toward the church because that's where God's at. All right? 
So we don't need to do that because God is present with us, and this is what becomes the issue. They built this beautiful temple, and everybody said, that's where God's at. I've got to pray toward that temple. And this is where they saw the literal glory of God. He descended upon that temple, which gave them that idea that that is where God's dwelling. And Solomon is reminding him he's everywhere. This, this temple can't hold him. This temple is just our meager expression of, of, of joy and devotion to him and our place of our centralized worship. And so we see this whole process. He gives them this reply. He says, it was in David's heart, it was in the heart of my, David, my father, to build this temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel, for God's name. And we have talked several times, the name. The name is the reputation and all that goes along with the reputation of God. So they're building a temple, and this was Solomon and David's great desire. They wanted a temple that was worthy of God, or as worthy as a man could, could build. All right? And this is not something that's uncommon. We've talked about this. Over the, over the centuries and millennia, different, different age, church ages have built great cathedrals to God, and their purpose was to do just this. God, we want to build a building of worship that is worthy of you. Then we come after that and people go, well, these, these, those, those church fathers wasted way too much money building these buildings. They put too much money into the building. We're not putting any money in the building. We're doing everything external. And all they do is put up, you know, wooden pews, you know, you know, wooden benches and, and rough, rough things and say, okay, God, that's all we're going to do. And then, you know, it goes back and forth. And so Solomon and David had this desire to build a building worthy of God. Now, now, I'm not sure that it was worthy of God, but as far as human concepts go, it's about as worthy of God that any temple that has ever been built could be. It was covered with gold from top to bottom, and it was made out of the best stones. It was made out of everything that said, God, this is, this is for your glory. We want our lives to be that. We want our lives to be to God's glory. And our goal as Christians should be, God, I want to live a life that is worthy of you. That means we're going to have to trust God, let him work through us, and say, God, help me get, make the best decisions possible. Not because we're going to be rewarded for them, but because we just love him so much that we want to serve him. We want to be obedient. And this is the way it is for, for children who just want to do what's right because they love their parents. Not because they're trying to get their parents to love them more or anything, but they go, I just want to honor my parents. And it's not as big a deal as it used to be. It used to be a really big deal. Now it's not so much of a big deal. But this should be our attitude toward God. God, you have done so much for me. I just want to live a life that will glorify you. Not that I get anything out of it necessarily. When I do anything for a reward, I've got my reward, Jesus said. When I'm just serving God, then he says, okay, here, you're going to be getting a gift and a reward for service. If I'm trying to serve him for a reward, God says, nah, you got your reward, you're, you're, you're done with. You, know, you, 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 you got your glory, you got your praise, you got your adoration, you... You, you got noticed, 
you got what you wanted, you, and, and God says, that's it. But you know, the good news for us, when we're just walking with God and, and doing what he wants us to do, we're all going to be surprised when we get to heaven and God says, okay, here's your rewards. Because I talk to so many people go, I've not done anything for God. And it's really funny when I know they have. When I know that they are an example to other people as a, as a Christian. Are they the best example? Not necessarily, but I can see growth in them. And I know that they're going, that they're, they're making changes and people are noticing them. And they're going to get rewarded for that kind of a lifestyle. Are they the ones standing up in front of the group singing or, or, or preaching? Very few people get to do that. You know, and those ones have to be careful of getting proud in what they're doing. <laughs> because it's easy to get proud of being, oh, look at me, I, I, I get to stand up here all the time. You know, we got to be careful not to get into that area. Because people want to make things an idol. This is one of the reasons I believe that we don't have anything that Jesus wrote, drew, or made. Because if there was anything like that, what an idol that would become. Now, this is, this is what Jesus wrote. Uh, forget the rest of the Bible, forget about anything else. We, we'd be looking, people would be memorizing that, that text and that would be all that they would care about. Now, we, we already see it when Moses built, the, put the serpent, brazen serpent on a pole to heal people that got bit by the, by the snakes in Numbers. We find out later on in Second uh, Kings that the people had turned it into an idol. They were offering, they were offering sacrifices and worshiping the serpent on the on the the brazen serpent, and they had to destroy it. You know, this happened. They, and we see them getting to the place where they worship the temple rather than God. We need to be very careful that we're worshiping God only. And believe me, I hear it all the time I've, over the years. Well, you know, you just, this is what you have to do to be worshiping God. You have to have this kind of music. You know, you have to have, you know, in old Baptist style, you had three hymns. A special, an offering and special music and a, and a, and a sermon and then a closing, closing song. And if you weren't worshiping that way, you weren't worshiping God. All right? But in other churches where you have your 20, 30 minutes of praise time in choruses and everything, you'd have an offering, you'd have a message, and you'd have some more praise time. And if you weren't, praise, if you weren't worshiping God in that style, you weren't worshiping God. The how to worship God is not important. The what we do is not important. It's easy to get into a routine because it makes it easy to plan a message, plan your service. You just keep doing the same thing over and over again, and we want to be careful. You know, I'm I'm willing that if God says change the order of things, just to change the order of things, even when it's all written down on it. But this is what we're doing. I'm willing to do whatever God says and make that happen because. The worship order, the worship style is not what's important. What we do is not important. It's are we worshiping God? And we can worship God on our own and should be worshiping him on our own. When we're reading our Bible, are we just reading our Bible or are we worshiping God, asking God to show us what, what we're supposed to learn? Do we spend any time in our prayer and worshiping God during prayer time? You know, we, we have that, that statement on our prayer sheets. Adoration. Do we spend time just adoring God? Talking about how wonderful. This is what Solomon has done here. God, you delivered us from Egypt. You brought us out. You delivered us. You kept your word. 
you know, do we spend time in confession before God, confessing our sins, confessing our faults? And if we look at the scriptures, it's kind of interesting because one of the great prayers is Daniel. Daniel is praying to God, and he uses I and we, I think it was 31 times in the prayer, and it's all the bad things that his people have done. And he's making it, God, we have done, I have done. And we look at Daniel, and he is about as perfect a man as ever has existed, because it says 30, uh, he had 150 enemies, political enemies, trying to find anything that they could use against him, and they couldn't find anything. That's a pretty good, outstanding character. Because political enemies are good at finding information about you. And he had all these guys not able to find anything against him. So that tells us he was a great man of integrity. He was a great man of honor. And yet when he made this prayer, God, we have done, we have done, we have done, including himself in all those prayers. Do we look at that? God says, when my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and call on my name, he will hear. We need to always remember that there's none of us that are perfect. None of us. And we need to be able to understand that we're just as bad as anybody else, and we need to be able to pray to God and humble ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to, for, to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we need to be able to say to God, God, we need to, we need to confess. Do we spend time giving God thanks? That is something that most people end up forgetting, and I've done it myself many times. We oftentimes go to God with a long list of wants and needs and, and, and desires and then forget to give God thanks for it. Once we've done all that, then we can give him our, you know, God, this is what I'd like to have done. After we spend a lot of time adoring him, and we need to spend more time just in adoration of God, whether it's in worship songs, in just quoting back scriptures to him and saying, God, you are wonderful, you're so good, you're, I, you know, uh, you've kept your word, you've given us promises, thank you. We don't want to make it repetitious, but we do want to keep it in mind that God deserves adoration. He deserves this adoration. And in verse 18, he quotes God saying, you know, David, your father, whereas was in your heart to build the house unto my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build my house, but your son shall build, shall, that shall come forth out of your loins. He shall build the house in your name. So here Solomon, again, is just continuing, reminding the people of God's faithfulness. It is important for us to remember God's faithfulness. And I really encourage people, it's not a bad idea to keep some kind of notebook or, or a computer page or whatever you, whatever you like using of answered prayers and promises that God has given you. Because when you are down, and you will be, notice I said when, it's not if you are down, but when you are down and you don't think God is doing anything for you and, and you kind of forget that he has done things for you and you're getting a self self-pity party going on, you need to be able to pull out that little book and say, oh, yes, God did this, 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 and it was for me. That will help change your attitude around quickly. 
This is why Solomon is pointing them back to Exodus. God delivered you from Egypt. When you were in bondage, before you were a people, God delivered you just like he said he would. You know, he could have spent all the time in the wandering. He could have spent all the time through Judges. He could have spent all the time through Joshua and said, here are all the points that God has delivered you. And it is great. If you, if you can't find things that God has done for you, go at least back to the Bible and see what God has done for his people in the past. But you know, if you can think about the things God did for you, it is much more effective. Because if you're looking at the Bible, in the back of our mind as fleshly beings is always, okay, God, you did those things for them, but what have you done? Or even worse, what have you done for me lately? We as human beings tend to do that a lot with God. All right, God, yeah, you took care of me last week, but what have you done for me, what, what have you done for me this week? God, you did something yesterday, but what have you done for me today? We have got to get out of that mindset. Number one, we don't deserve anything from him. So we should be very happy to get anything from him. And the other problem that we have is we look at the people in the Bible and we think, boy, God, you did so much for them. You, you, they they live, live such exciting lives. And I've already talked about this. When we look at somebody like Abraham, the story of Abraham, who's one of the key figures of their religion and their base, he only has about eight chapters in the Bible. And yes, lots of things happen to him in those eight chapters. But those eight chapters cover almost 100 years of his life. So there were lots of times that all he did was get up in the morning, eat breakfast, take care of the, take care of the flocks and the, and the household duties, have lunch, do more taking care of it, eat dinner, and go to bed. <laughs> Sound a little bit like our lives? Get up in the morning, eat breakfast, go to work, take care of business, and go to bed. I don't care whose life you take in the Bible, most of their life is pretty quiet and mundane. Yes, God steps into their life and does great things here and there. David, all kinds of miracles that happened for David, but there were long periods where things didn't happen. And David got up in the morning, took care of business, went to bed that night. Just like we do. And we look at these things. We look at the book of Acts. Acts covers about 50 years and 20-some chapters. And we go, wow, that first century church, lots of things happened to it. Yeah, we read in Paul's letters, you know, we read two chapters where lots of things happen, and then we read in his letters to the epistles, I spent three years there. And we get two events in the, in the three years that make it into the Bible. Most of his time was just teaching the church on a day-to-day -day basis, having Bible studies, having services, teaching them how to walk, and then something big would come along and he'd be driven out of the town to go to the next town where he'd spend a couple years in and then something big would drive him out of the town and he'd go to the next town. Yeah. We need to be very careful that we just don't get to the place where we think God's not working because he's not doing things that are exciting to us. God is always working. He's always got a plan. We just stay faithful and just keep serving him. Now, if you go for 20 or 30 years and God has not done anything in your life, then you might have a problem to have to consider. But I think most of us realize that God has done things in our life. He's saved us, which is a big change. And most of us, if we think about it, can see places where God has stepped into our life in small little things here and there. And maybe big things. 
where he's caused great revival to come into our life and great change into our life. We need to be careful that we always focus on God's truth. And I hammer on this because our feelings are not important. We base everything about our life on feelings. I feel happy. I feel, I feel joyful. I feel, I feel like God loves me. I feel that my, my spouse loves me. I feel that my kids love me. I feel, you know, you know, and, or I feel like I hate this job. I feel like I hate the, this, you know, you know. And the problem is feelings really don't matter. We need to go back to what God says and says, God, your word is true. If God says it, it's true. And the more I believe in his word, the more faith I'm going to have, and then my feelings will eventually come along with what I already know to be true. Why do we have joy in our hearts? Because we know that God's in control. Why can I take pleasure that all things work together for good? Because God says so, therefore I don't have to worry about anything, even when it looks like everything's going wrong. Because God is still in control. And I've got to just say, God, I'm going to hold on to this. And then my feelings eventually will say, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to change your thoughts, so I guess I should just follow what you're thinking. We have control of our feelings if we will not give way into the negative feelings. I'm not talking about positive thinking and all that because God's truth is what we're doing. And as long as we're keyed in on his truth, it's going to be positive, but it's positive on something that is real. It's not me just saying everything's going to be good, Everything's going to be good because God says that everything is going to work together for good and that he's in control, so I know everything will eventually be good. Maybe heaven before it's good, but he has a plan and a reason for it. And this is important for us to understand because we do not see things the way God sees them. God sees the beginning and the end at the same moment so when he says, this is the path I put you on, and we're going, God, this path looks very scary and dark, and there's, there's d- ditches on both sides, and, and there's wild animals on the other side of the ditch, and God says, just stay on the path, and you're going to be okay. I know where it's going. And I'm going, doesn't look good, God. It looks scary. If you've ever seen the, the uh, mystery shows, you're walking down the lane where, you know, where everything looks bad. As long as you stay on the lane, the lane you're okay. And that's what God's saying. I am with you. I have this path put together for you. And if we just focus on him, it is wonderful. If you've, re- if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, Christian goes down this one line where there's lions on both sides of the line. The guy says, just walk down the path. And he's going, I'm not going down that. But he goes, walk down the path. This is the only way. And he gets done and he goes, well, why did the lions attack? He goes, because they're on chains. <laughs> They can't, they, can't get, they can't get to the path. That's our life. God takes us down paths with lions on both sides often. As long as we stay on the path, the lions can't get us. But if we get off the path, we get mold. <laughs> and unfortunately, too many times we get off the path and get mold. And God picks us up, patches us up, and puts us back on the path. So we want to look at this, and God's saying, he's saying, God has done all of this just as he's promised, and he's, and he's going to be with you. All right, verse 19, Nevertheless, he shall build, you shall not build my house, but your son shall build it, they shall come forth. So it says, David, you're not going to get to build the house. And if you remember, it was because David was a man of blood. He had committed, you know, possibly it was the sins of Uriah and 
and Bathsheba, that, that it could also be that he was a man of war. And I said this, I really think that David enjoyed the war. It wasn't just that he you know, was a good warrior, but I think he enjoyed the war. And God says, no, you've gone too far. And it could very well just be he murdered, murdered Uriah and he had the adultery of Bathsheba. And God says, these are your consequences. You can't build this temple. And we've said this over and over. There's always consequence for sin. Always. And it could be worse than we think it is. There may be things in our life that we don't get to do that God wanted us to do because we have made certain sins in our life that will keep us from doing the things that God says you were perfectly created to do. And you know, this is something that's very important for us to remember. Each one of us has a skill set that makes us uniquely qualified for what God wants us to do. Uniquely qualified to talk to certain people in our lives, uniquely qualified to be able to minister to certain people. There are people that I can minister to that others will not minister to because I love talking at a college level and answering questions and everything. Many people could never be able to talk to them and, you know, and get away with it, yet God has gifted me to talk to them. If I choose not to talk to them, God will bring somebody else in to talk to them, but it won't be the same person. I am not gifted to talk to certain other people that are that are in other places, but I can and will. If God opens a door, I will. But there are other people that are gifted to talk to certain people. There are people in your life you are uniquely gifted to be the one to talk to about God. And if you don't, God will take the second or third choice, but, and you'll lose the blessing of it. And God, they'll still hear the message. It just may not be delivered in quite the same fashion that it would have been from you. And they may have listened. They may not have listened. You, know, you never know. Talking to somebody does not guarantee that they're going to hear you. God just says, talk to them. Lift up the gospel message. It's been said that most people need to hear the gospel five to, five to 15 times before they're going to respond. You know, I don't know how true that is or how they get that information, but I'm pretty sure it's true. Because I think it's funny because I listen to people's testimony and they go, so-and-so talked to me and it was the first time I heard the gospel message. You know, and I'm going, wow, I know that I've known this person for a little, little bit and I gave them the gospel message at least two or three times. You know, but you know, it really is true though, the first time they heard it was when they finally responded probably. Because before that it hit the ears but not the brain. And it would hit the brain and not the heart. And it really is a heart decision. You know, I can know that, I need, that I'm a sinner and, and need, need to confess my sins and accept Jesus Christ, but until it becomes a heart condition, I am not saved. And as many people, they talk about the 18 inches between the mind and the brain and the heart there being the difference of salvation. Lots of people know what it means to be saved. But it really comes down to believe. Not just know, but truly believe. And you know, this is kind of an interesting thing. In physics classes, they love to do an experiment. They teach you that a pendulum will never go further than, than it start, the starting point. It'll swing out and come back, and it'll never go further than it started. And what they'll do is they'll stand somebody right next to it and hold the ball right up near their nose and let it swing out and watch them flinch. Even though they know that that ball is not going to touch them, they don't believe it. Because they just don't believe that it's not, that it, 
you know, when it's coming straight at them, they don't believe that it's going to stop. You know, and it's this kind of thing for us. We need to get it out of just knowledge into God, I absolutely believe it. This is where it becomes real. When I live it out because it is what I believe. Now, we don't get there, we don't get there in perfection right from the beginning. It takes a long time to get to learn it. It takes a long time to get there. But you know, as we grow in Christ, we start really believing his word. We really start believing. You know, I truly 100% believe Romans 8.28 in my life and pretty much live it out. Not perfectly, but pretty much. I really believe Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. That one I don't believe quite as well because I still try to lean on my own, my own thoughts. But you know, we need to spend time in God's word and say, God, help me believe. Now be careful when you start saying, God, help me believe, get ready for the test because how does he make us learn to believe? He puts us in a test to see, do you believe? Because it is one thing to say, God, I, 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 I know that what you say is true. It's another thing when we're in the middle of the test to say, God, I believe that what you say is true. And I'm going to live on it. And this is very important for us. We get into his word, we personalize it and say, God, I believe. And once you get to that place, he's going to say, okay, let's see if you believe. And then he's going to intensify the test and say, do you really believe? And then we pass that one. He says, okay, let's see if you really, really, really believe. And he keeps intensifying the test to say, is it really in the center of your heart that you believe? Or is it still just a mind thing? And salvation has to become a belief. God, Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. And I've said this so many times, you know, I'm a manager. I like to have a plan B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. You know, I used to, I make plans upon plans upon plans. But when it comes to salvation, if Jesus isn't the answer, there is no other plan. When I die and stand before God, if Jesus isn't enough, I've lived, a, I've lived my life wrong. And I have, no other, I have no other plan to get through it. If you meet somebody who's got other plans, their good works, whatever else they're having in there, they don't have the right plan and they're probably going to be rejected. We need to be careful. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by him. He is absolutely the only way. Now, how do I know that he is? God has given me such a good life and he's been faithful to me and blessed me in so many ways that I know that he's true. If for some strange reason it's not true and, and heaven is not true, I have not missed out on a thing because he's given me such a great life on this world and the great life he's given me in this world tells me that he's going to be true in heaven because it makes no sense for him to give me such a great life here and then lie to me about heaven. So, but you know, People will go to you, and this is a great question. People go, well, what if you're wrong? I'm going, I, I've not lost out on anything. What if you're wrong? Yeah. I, mean, I have lived a great life. God has blessed me so special. If, if there is no heaven, I have not missed out on a thing. I've got a blessed life. 
And the question is for them, what if, what if you're wrong? What if, what if there is a heaven and hell waiting for you? You know, I have no problem with them asking me, what if you're wrong? If I'm wrong, I've not, nothing, not, not, a, not a problem in my life on it. When I give my tithes and offering, God has always blessed it. When I'm obedient to God, he's always blessed. When I've shared him with others, he's always blessed. When I've lived, lived with him in great faith and courage, he has comforted me. And I know that I have that comfort that most people don't have. Because I've talked to enough people to know that they don't have a lot of comfort out there. So if nothing else, I've lived a great, great life and I have no regrets. But because of the life that I live, I know that God's true. I know that he's true. He's been true here. He will be true for eternity. You know, and it's kind of interesting to me that so many Christians do not want to trust God in this lifetime. They want to trust God for eternity. God is going to take care of me through all of eternity, but I can't trust him here. And I'm going, that makes no sense. Either you have a God that is God or you don't have a God that is God. You, know, you cannot say I trust God for my eternity if I'm not trusting him in the here and now. If I'm trusting him in the here and now and he's faithful, he will be faithful for eternity. And this is what Solomon is saying. God has promised things and he's delivered. Verse 20, And the Lord hath performed his word, and he, and he spoke, And I am risen from in, up in the room of David my father to sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and have built a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. He says, I'm the one that has finished this. I'm the one that has been the answer. You know, quite, quite interesting. You know, what a, almost egotistically bold in this. <laughs> I'm the answer to this promise. But it is the true statement. He is the answer to that promise. He got to build the house. We need to be careful because sometimes we try to get to the place where, well, God doesn't use, you know, God, you know, hasn't used me in any great way when God has used you in a great way. There is a place where you can be humble, but it's also a place where you can be falsely humble. If God is using you, don't be afraid to, to accept that God is using you. Because I've heard all kinds of, oh, it's all God, it's all God. Of course it's all God. You wouldn't be doing anything if it wasn't God in the first place. You know, quit this false humility. And that's what it really is. It really is false humility. It's either I'm, I'm too afraid of being, you know, getting, getting proud if I accept it, so I'm going to say it's all God. Or they really had the wrong idea. You know, we look through the scriptures. These guys knew that they had done God's work. They knew they were doing God's work. They knew that God was doing the work. But they also accepted that it was them doing it. Paul said, I am the apostle. I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I am, the, I am your pastor to all these, different teacher, all these different churches that he had started. He wasn't saying, well, you know, if you think you, if you, think you want to follow me, that's great. You know. No, he was saying, God has anointed me. I have a title, and I'm going to stand on that title. You know, we need to be careful that we don't put ourselves so far down that we're going, we're, we're nothing, because we know we're nothing. We know we're nothing. If without God, we can't do with anything. So if there's any praise and any glory, it goes to God. But I'm not to be going, oh, God, I, you know, I, I, nothing, I didn't. We did one very important thing. We allowed God to work through us, which is more than most people do. Most people push God off and won't let him work through them at all. 
So we want to be careful. Solomon is saying, I'm the answer. I'm the answer to this, this promise of God. And I built this temple. And he's able to stand up. And he built it to the name of God. Everything we do needs to be in his name, lifting him up. If I am lifted up in any way, shape, or form, there's a problem. You know, when there's evangelists out there that witness and, and get thousands of people saved, and they, and they, and they say, well, I had, this, I had this event and 10,000 people got saved. And there will be Christians that will criticize them. How can you claim to do that? Well, they let God work through them. Billy Graham led millions to the Lord. Greg Glory is leading hundreds of thousands to the Lord so far if he hasn't crossed the million mark. You know, D.L. Moody, thousands of people. And you know, for some of them, like D.L. Moody, he would be in depression after every, after every campaign because more people didn't get saved. He would go, what did I do wrong? You know, used of God in a great way and get upset that more people didn't get saved and go into depression. I think he carried it a little too far. Right? He still should have said, God, you've done it. And he's a great man. He was used by God. But we want to be careful. Don't downplay yourself because you're so afraid of looking uh, proud. Now, if you're getting proud, downplay yourself. <laughs> downplay yourself and don't get, don't get proud because God will make sure that you fall. Pride goes before destruction and a fall. All right, so if you start getting proud, God will say, okay, let me show you that you're nothing. <laughs> if you're going, God, thank you for using me and taking, taking pride in what God is doing, it's a good thing. And then this last verse in this paragraph is, I have set there a place for the ark where, wherein is the covenant of the Lord which he hath made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. He says the ark is now in a, in a stable place. It's in, the, it's in the Holy of Holies. And you know, I kind of find it interesting that he always talks about the ark. He's not talking about the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is more important than the ark. But the ark holds the law. And he doesn't really fully comprehend grace. For all the wisdom he has, he's not fully comprehending the power of grace and mercy. He's focused on law. And that is a human trait as well. We oftentimes focus on the law. God, what is it that you want me to do so that I can please you? What set of rules do you want me to follow? That's how we normally think. God, if, if you just tell me what to do, I'll do it. Well, the problem is we won't. You know, God gives us a bunch of rules, and we're not going to follow his rules because we don't follow the rules he gives us already. You know, we don't obey the simple rules, the Ten Commandments. We don't follow the other 603 rules that are in the Bible. We don't follow our man-made rules very well. And yet, this is what Solomon's focused on. God made a covenant with his people. He gave them a set of rules to follow. And he says, we're going to follow them. And we're going to see that that process falls in in the rest of this chapter when he gives a whole bunch of, if you guys do this, God will do this. If you do this, God will do this. It is so easy and it's human nature to say, God, what are the rules that I've got to follow? Give me the, the 28 easy steps to be a follower of God. You know, 
we'll fall flat on, on, on one, and if we make it through one, we'll fall, fall on two, by, and by three, we'll definitely have fallen. But you know, we tend to want to do this. Self-help books, 10 easy steps to you know, get rid of whatever it is that you're wanting to get rid of. And we tr tend to bring that same attitude into Christianity. God, just give me the 10 steps I need to follow to be obedient. If you ask God for the 10 steps to follow, he's going to give you the 10 commandments. <laughs> just to show you that you can't follow the 10 commandments. Because not a one of us can follow all the 10 commandments. Especially if we take it to Jesus' level. We might say, God, I've never murdered anybody. And Jesus says, if you have anger at your brother without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. Well, God, I've never had adultery. If you've lusted after somebody, you've committed adultery in your heart. You know, these things are out there over and over. And if you think you've kept all of the Ten Commandments, he takes and gives you one last one, you shall not covet. You shall, you shall not want something that belongs to somebody else. You know, there is not a person in the world that hasn't, hasn't failed that one. Okay, and that one is right there, number 10, don't covet. You know, God, they have a really nice house. I should have that, whoops. <laughs> God, they got a really nice car. I really, whoops. <laughs> you know, we've all broken that one. Even if we managed and we don't to keep all the other ones, we would fail at covet. You know, and yet we think we want God to just give us a bunch of rules to follow. You know, and churches have done this over the years. You know, let's give you some rules for the church. If you want to be a good Christian, these are the things you do. You know, for many years in the 40s and 50s, you, you don't drink, you don't dance, you don't smoke, you don't, you know, you, you don't do these different things. They give you this long list, and if you did all those things, you're a good Christian. A good Christian headed straight to hell if you didn't know Jesus Christ. Because you weren't a Christian if you didn't know Jesus Christ, but you followed all the church's rules. You know, so we want to be very careful with this and say, God, I want you. I want to know you and you crucified. I want you to be indwelling my heart and living through me. And that is what is so important for us, that we bow our heart, we recognize we're a sinner, ask for forgiveness, and ask him to be the Lord of our life. And then the most important step beyond that is let him be Lord. Because until he's Lord, you really have to doubt whether you're saved. If he isn't your Lord, you don't have absolute assurance that he is your Savior. Because he says, I am Lord. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He says, you're going to follow me. And when we follow him and make him Lord, he will guide, he will instruct. And life is a lot easier when, we, when we're obeying the Lord. You know, not that any of us ever do it perfectly, but it's a lot easier when we're obeying him and not having to face the consequences for doing the wrong things and listening to him. Because it's so wonderful when we just listen to him, he promises he'll fill our mouth with words. Nothing is greater than to witness to somebody and realize that you're no longer talking, the Holy Spirit is talking through you. And it's like, and I've been there so many times where it's like, I'm listening to me, and it's not me because I'm listening to me. <laughs> And it's God literally speaking. And there's times when it happens when I'm preaching when I know that it's God speaking, not me. And it's like, wow, this is kind of fun. I, 
Am I out there in the audience listening out here? Yeah. But you know, this is where we need to be with him, that he is our Lord and Master. We're being crucified. He's living out through us. And that's when great blessings come. That is when we start writing down, God, you did this for me that day. God, you did this for me that day. Wow, God, you're, you know. And then we can come back to those when we're struggling. And I'm coming right back to where we started at the beginning. Keep a list of what God has done for you. Keep it in a notebook. If you're a computer person like me, keep it in a computer file. Keep it in a note, you know, note in your Bible, wherever. And when you feel like God is not part of your life and he's not, not with you, and you're having a pity party, go back and review what God has done for you. And I've said this so many times. It's great to be able to go back to the Bible, and that's true. We'll get encouraged from the Bible, but we'll tend to go, well, that's what you used to do. And we hear it all through the Bible. You know, in, in Judges, we heard several times, God, where are you when you did these miraculous things? Because they hadn't seen them. It's good to read the biographies I encourage us to read, because that's more modern. You know, okay, God, yep, you did it for the Bible, you did it for those missionaries. But you know, when you get your own, and you read your own things that God has done for you, and you remind yourself of what God has done for you, it is a great blessing. And you can use those to help others. You know, and encourage them. What has God done for you? Get people to change the way they think. What has God done for me? And when you're having somebody in a, in a pity party not trusting God, and you know that, you know, you're pretty sure they're saved, ask them, what has God done for you in the past? Keep bringing them back to what God has done for them. Because we're expected to share our testimony. Nobody can argue with my testimony. I lived it. You might argue with it, but you're not going to win because I lived it. When we share our testimony to people, they may not believe it, but that's not our problem. It is our testimony. And when you're sharing what God has done for you, you're going to be very passionate about it. Because you lived it. And whether they believe it or not, doesn't matter. You share them what God has done for you, and then you point them back to Christ himself. That Jesus died for their sins and is wanting to be part of their life. And we need to be able to do that with one another and hold each other accountable. When we're having a hard time, what has God done? What has God done? And don't forget what God has done. Because he has always done things, and we see it all through the scriptures. They always point back, this is what God has done. This is what God has done. We need to keep that same mentality. This is what God has done for you, for me. And really want to encourage us, let's personalize as much as possible. What has God done for me? Each one of us needs to be able to ask that question. What has God done for me? What are his promises for me? As we start reading the scripture, as I said, look at it and say, God, what are your promises for me? What have you done for me? And that may sound kind of selfish, but the only way it's really going to keep you is when God is your personal God, not just some remote, out there individual, not the church's God, not your parents' God, not your grandparents' God, but your God. Yeah. And the last thing to say, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. So it has to be your God. We can't say, and this is why it's funny when I go witnessing, well, 
mom and dad were Christians or grandpa was a pastor and I'm going, that's, all, that's fine, but what is your relationship with God? Because God does not have any grandchildren, great-grandchildren. He only has children that he has called to his, to his presence. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, care, and, and your ability, Lord. Help us to always keep in mind that you are our God, that you have a personal plan for us and a desire for us. Help us to focus on those things, and we ask you to be with us this week as we go about our business. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.